Welcome, everyone, to another Progress City Radio Hour in our town hall setting. I am Jeff Crawford. With me is my brother, Michael. Michael, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. I'm home for the holidays, and I am excited. I, too, am excited. And we got to say, you know, we have to mark the occasion a little bit. We usually don't talk about current events, but I just want to mark, you know, Bob Chapek is out and Bob Iger is in. I feel like this is a historic and historic moment for the Walt Disney Company, and we should should mark it. Yeah, there have been very few changing changings of the guard during our lifetimes, and this is one of them. So it bears mentioning a really surprising, I think it's safe to say, turn of events. I, you know, we were sitting around getting ready to watch the Elton John concert on Disney Plus, and <laughs> ironic, I had my phone in my hand and got a little notification email, mail notification, and said, well, what's this? And read the email. And I said, well, that can't be real. Someone is playing a prank, a devious prank on people. And uh, sure enough, it was real. So uh, best of luck to Mr. Iger as he returns. Yeah, we wish him the best. Um, I definitely think, yeah, well, we won't go too much into editorializing, but it it, it is just an, a, an interesting moment shades of i don't know 1984 in a way where it's just the amount of turmoil to make something like this happen and then right. it just snaps into focus and here we are so what um, is it about disney that brings dramatic transitions because i don't know this is the third yeah yeah i mean it's like yeah eisner to Iger was was dramatic saved the whole save disney thing yeah um and then now this where yeah, I, I imagine it'll be quite a while before we find out the whole story, but it seems like everyone is reacting positively to the change, so that's nice. Well, and you like to hear somebody say that that creative needs to be the focus of the company. We have seen that borne out throughout Disney history. When that is truly the focus, uh, Disney thrives, and when it's not, it doesn't. So, absolutely, we have so. a very creative person on the podcast again today, Michael. Yes, and boy, I'm excited to get back to it. This is part two of the interview I did with Disney legend Doris Hardoon. And, you know, uh, in the first part, we talked about her past up to her time joining Imagineering and working on the land for Epcot. And now we're going to talk about some other things she did for Epcot and then some other projects she did all across the world. Yeah, quite the dossier here. Uh, just an unending. Uh, like I say, I say this almost every time. We've just been so fortunate with our guests that we've had, but so many of them have had such long-lasting careers that go so many places. And Doris is no exception to this, and goes up to the very recent past and pr with projects still in the works. Absolutely, uh, she has really run the gamut. So. I can't wait for you all to hear this. We're going to jump right in to the second part of Michael's conversation with Doris Hardoon. After you worked on the land, you also wound up working on the gallery program, which is one of my favorite things that they do at Epcot. Tell me a little about that. How'd that come about for you? Yeah, no, that was a, uh 
a wonderful time. I really enjoyed that. So I had a double plus plus for me, you know, to to be involved with the land pavilion and the scale and scope of that, and which was already amazing. And simultaneously, I was pulled into uh, to design the the galleries that uh, had been decided to be part of the opening day in 1982, and in particular Mexico, Japan, China. I believe those were the first three that had an American adventure, of course, is the central anchor over at uh, world showcase. So I had to create uh, concepts, designs for all the galleries in those four locations, four pavilions and work with the independent individual curators that were assigned to, to create a, a collection for each of these four uh, galleries. I got pulled into it, I think, because, um, you know, exhibition design really wasn't a thing at WED back at that time. And the word got out that I had worked for two summers at the De Young Museum in San Francisco. And the miscommunication was, I, being a graphic designer, I had an internship with De Young as an assistant graphic designer to um, the lead designer there. And so my job was really to work on brochures and that kind of stuff back in that day. So that was, you know, in the 1974-ish, five-ish. But somehow people thought when I got to WED and when we started talking about galleries that I was an exhibition designer as well <laughs> because by default connected to the, the young. And um, lo and behold, before I knew it, you know, I was nominated as the designer for these uh, World Showcase galleries, which I'm so thankful for now. I don't know who exactly thought of that. Maybe it was Rolly. <laughs> but um, I got thrown into that. And my whole career as an exhibition designer began then. And it continued as, as I have talked about that even into my own company, I continued to do that. But the galleries were pretty special. Only because how often would any exhibition designer have the ability to design international uh, state-of-the-art and of a Smithsonian caliber collection from different parts of the world and to work with curators and individuals who come from those parts of the world and who specializes in, in taking care of and and as a historian to these collections, and I was right there working with them and actually helped on occasion to select working with the curator, what the exhibition theme would be. I did altogether 17 exhibitions in my lifetime on wow. that assignment from the first four, American Adventure being the, the main pavilion, the home pavilion, you might say the host pavilion, that rotated uh, fairly often in terms of the atrium area. And I worked with our own Imagineering artists with a lot of their artwork. We would rotate depending on the storytelling. We had a very, very small, what I would call almost like a walk-in case that were it's, it's probably about 20 some feet by 10 feet high in, in depth. But the collection in there was quite minimal. But again, the caliber was high because we would actually borrow from the Smithsonian. If the story was, you know, telling about, uh, you know, civil war or whatever, we would have artifacts that supported those stories. Typically, 
uh, when you design exhibitions, you know, on a rotational basis, all the exhibits rotated on average eight months for some exhibition because of the nature of the collection is very fragile, whether it be textile or paper, all of those things. And that's all part of the agreement made with the donor and the collection that came from, whether it be Smithsonian or private. And that's very serious. So we had to abide by that. So that's probably why I, I did so many exhibitions because we rotated very often. The longest collection that stayed. So I started with the four, but then eventually we had Norway included and we had Morocco included, the, the countries, and they, they provided collections. The longest, I would say, gallery that kept a particular exhibit going was probably about 18 months to about 24 months, which is, you know, not that typical if you were in an environment, but it was selected specifically with the uh, curator that the artifacts would not have, would not be so fragile that it would harm it if it stayed. But mind you, our entire, all, all of our galleries were of the Smithsonian caliber level of temperature control, lighting control, all of that. And that was very, very stringent. So materials all had to be acid-free, you know, materials that were all the propping, all the acrylic mounts. I designed all of it, backdrops, props to signage, graphics, color, um, the entire layout of it. And, um, and then to change it out, we had to do it all over again <laughs> and try to, you know, we try to leverage casework and try to use it again, but sometimes the collection just doesn't work. But so I was very fortunate and handled collections that are in the millions. And some of it is like going back, like the Mexico collection, there was one the pre-Columbian, just amazing. You can't even fathom how beautiful some of the pieces were. And then the China gallery was another incredible, the, the one that I remember. The, well, we had the Xi'an figures. We were the only second locations in the United States to get the Xi'an figures after the, um, it went to the expo. Wow. It came to us before it went to Smithsonian, which is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, that is. Well, that's what always been impressive is the quality. Like you say, the quality of the artifacts. Yes. And they're real. They're real, real treasures. They are real treasures. And we created brochures for every single one of the shows, which I have. And I, we had a wonderful graphic designer, Norm Inouye, who was the chief graphic designer that did almost all of the graphics, but I worked with him on it because being a graphic, I could not get my hand in that too. <laughs> and um, so we, we documented it all and it was all very much of a level and caliber that equals anything. And we used to have private collections. The China amazing one was the collection that came from the Imperial Palace that the curators, there were three, four curators that came with it. And they were like kids in a candy shop because when the crates showed up, it was musty, everything. And we literally hand opened it, gloves and all, masks, because it was it had been closed up. Never seen before by public, let alone those four curators. And when it opened, it was like they couldn't believe it because it's the first time 
anybody had seen it. That was gifts that were given to the emperor back in the day. And there was one collection that were all the clocks that were given as gifts to the emperor. And some of these clocks were so amazing, unbelievably beautifully hand done. It's like the Fabergé egg equivalent of mm-hmm. clocks. That's the one I remember. I remember that vividly because I was so impressed by that as a kid. The, those clocks were incredible. Gorgeous, yeah. Um, and the, all of them, they were just all were so special. And the Morocco one was so special. I remember, and I talk, by the way, a lot about, you know, when people ask me about my career, I always say it's life and career. Because I was eight months pregnant when I installed the uh, Morocco exhibition. And I remember the curator came from Morocco and she she was like, you can't be working. <laughs> you have to be careful. But, you know, work is work. We still continue to do it. And that collection was amazing also. Uh, but it took forever because... She explained it. it had to come on camelback through the desert and it went on an entire journey before we even got to America. Um, and it took a, a little while. Wow. So there were a lot of stories that were just amazing. Um, and I was so privileged to uh, be part of that. And through that process, which is not good because I got to meet all these fabulous curators and needs to say, I'm a real textile collector. I love it. Uh, especially you know, any kind, but, in particular, Asian textiles. And uh, I, I ended up being involved in you know, owning a few. And I actually won piece for the Japan Gallery. I don't know if you saw that exhibit. It had a wedding gown in the front casework that I had. And that was, I own that piece. And I loved oh, it. Oh, wow. The exhibition. It was like a 16th, 15th century uh, Japanese uh, traditional wedding kimono. It was gorgeous. White with all silver laid threads through it and had a, a train about three, four foot train to it. I still have it. That's beautiful. fantastic. Yeah. It was really cool. So yeah, it was very much in my DNA and uh, it, it's just connected with me stories about there was more, I think part of that exhibition, we had the uh, Shogun section and there was a Shogun uh, armor that was donated to us to be shown. And I remember, and this was after already the park had opened. So when park opens, you can't do any kind of installation and work during operating hours, because it's just, you just don't. And this particular gallery in Japan did not have a back door that went to the back of house. I had to go on stage to get into the gallery. So we couldn't work during the day. We had to work at night. And I remember so well, it was a rainy, drizzly night, and we needed to bring that Shogun armor piece, which was the helmet and the bodyguard part from the vault back of house. And I had to bring it in and, and do the installation of it. And my a registrar was driving the sort of like a little golf cart thing. And I sat in the back and held that, that, that artifact piece in my arms and Oh my gosh, you know, for that moment, you think about who was wearing that and it still had stains on it that I were blood stains, you know, you know, from what that person must have gone through, what war he went through and what, you know, how, how he died, um, how that whole piece had and spirit about it. And here I was, you know, 
fast forward how many centuries later and I'm holding him in my arms and on my lap and taking him to be shown. It was just kind of surreal. I would imagine so. It's a long history and an, an object with a lot of imbued history into it is yeah. meaningful. And that's a lot of pressure. You know, you're handling all these artifacts. You're talking about you know, these pre-Columbian artifacts that are so ancient. And that, that's, that's, that's a lot of pressure. It was a lot of pressure. And there was a funny story, which I cannot tell you about that pre-Columbian collection. But um, maybe off camera, I might tell you one day. But that right. that was certain, yeah. And you have to think about, how, and you know, everything had to be pre-thought, right? Casework, scale size. You know, how do you install it? How do you, you know, all that stuff had to be thought through. Um, and I did get training. You know, the company sent me back to Smithsonian uh, in the beginning of all of this, and I got, I, I, I went through their course, trained it, and got insured to handle artifacts i think my hands back then it was like a big deal you know i was insured for a million dollars each hand so i can handle <laughs> artifacts properly wow i know it was great and it was perfect because when i worked on the gene autry western heritage museum at the time i had to work with their curatorial staff in the back when we were selecting the collection to go into case because by then i had already designed all of the it was like over i don't know how many hundreds of cases that I hand did little models for to show the client um, how each thing would go in. And um, the model maker and the, I mean, the prop maker was an amazing gentleman. He was like super duper on all of the plexi because I required no bubbling on any of the joints and everything had to be polished clear so that the eye doesn't get distracted by all these, you know, imperfections in plexi. Mm -hmm. Um, and he sure did it, boy. Uh, that was amazing because the Autry team, the curatorial staff team and the curator and the management, artifact management team, they were very, very clear on how it must be handled. And their vault is unbelievable. State of the art of temperature control and the maximum of storage, everything. And it was huge. It was the same footprint as the uh, museum above up above the galleries oh, wow. up above yeah it's that's a really fantastic museum that's a lot of fun that museum yeah. you know um it's hard for for a designer to see to to go through the design and and i see it finish and i walk away just like all of us we walk away from our our attractions and theme parks and we i usually don't go back and ever see it again and too true to that point, I've never been back to the Autry or oh, to wow. Baltimore or to the Museum of Tolerance, let alone all my galleries. Once I finish, I don't go. I think our galleries, it's a little easier because we're a for-profit organization and the quality standard of operation and maintenance is very important to us. And it's always been kept up by an incredible prop team that's in Florida, the North Service area. And I had no doubt everything looked exactly the same as I finished it on the day I walked and walked out. But museums are harder because they're all nonprofits and they really have to um, 
create like a fundraising every year to operate it and maintain it. And on many cases, it's hard to see how certain things don't stay the same because they just can't get maybe the, the amount of funding they need to upkeep. And a lot of these museums are huge. I mean, the Autry was like 50,000, 55,000 square feet. It's enormous. Yeah. enormous. And the amount of artifacts that uh, Jean Autry had was over like in the 20,000 range. And I forget how many we ended up with, but we sure ended up with a lot. My favorite, favorite, favorite case was the bridal case. Is that bridal case? I don't know if it's still there. But it, I designed it so that all the mounts for the bridle and the way it goes on the horse's head, and they're all different and beautiful. Some of them is silver, the bowl in silver design and all. And this gentleman that did all the plexi, he created very minimal, and I want it minimal so that literally these bridles would be floating inside this case. And he did it. Um, and moving that case from back of house onto stage was, it took something like an hour and a half because we were moving it inch by inch. It was just so delicate with the mounts and the way the bridles were. But, you know, all those things, it's, um, it's part of that experience. And it's difficult to share with listeners and or, you know, mentees that are asking questions because they can't. They can only hear it, but to experience, and how would you ever do that for everybody? It's hard, right? And if I didn't get this job, I wouldn't have gone through any of the stuff that I would have gone through and learned on the fly, on the mm -hmm. spot. And you have to be able to figure out what went wrong and quickly adjust and adapt. Um, I have to tell you one story I think I can tell you. I don't think Jackie Autry would be angry with me because Jean, Jean's gone and Joanne Hale, who was my mentor, she was the um, director, amazing woman of the museum. She was like mom to me. In the one gallery that was where the guns were, uh, before you get to the guns gallery and, and before you walked, to the, it was like the jail. It was... I forgot the name of that gallery, but it's where the actual, uh, the curatorial team allowed for us to put an actual jail door with the bars and all. And they mm -hmm. felt it was okay to put it on stage and allow the guests to actually stand behind and get a photo op or, you know, sort of get a moment of feeling what it felt like to be behind bars back then. And my team, I had a very small team that I brought in to, to work on this. And there was a wonderful theme artist. And I designed all the casework in that particular gallery to have a look like the bars, like the, uh, the rusting on the bars. So all the case bases had a sort of a stippled and dimensional and, and rusted look about it and the colors that were selected and he painted on all of them, he did a beautiful job. And so one day he was still working on it and it was the end of the day and everybody had pretty much wrapped up and he was the last to go. And I said, okay, I'll see you in the morning. And he said, yeah, I'll just be a little bit, I'll finish out and I'll, I'll leave. And so the next morning we came in and every morning we always walk, I walk every, every morning with the, with the curatorial and the registrar team. And we always walk 
every single gallery to make sure where we're at, what's, what are we doing today? Make sure our schedule's on point, everybody's ready to go, the artifacts mounted, et cetera. And we ended up in that room and we did a, a walk and suddenly I hear the scream and I <laughs> what happened? I went over and they were all huddled in front of the, the bars that were on stage. It uh -huh. was a prop, supposed to be a prop. You know, in our world, we would create those bars and make it as a prop, but made it look like real bar. But that's a real, real jail door that the that the uh, collections manager allowed. Well, what happened was that the theme artist was so great in what he did. And before he left that night, before he thought the bars didn't look authentic enough, that it wasn't rusted looking enough. So he ended up painting those bars. <laughs> made it much, much more sort of rusted looking with all the detailing and the feathering and his everything, every single bar on that door is probably about, I don't know, 10 or 15 or so bars. And so when the his staff saw it, they screamed because it was like an art object that got mucked up with yeah. paint. <laughs> so that was the scream. And of course I had to apologize and, and they understood, but it was nevertheless, it was a heart, heart attack moment for them. And um, I think her, the team spent the next like four or five days with tiny little Q-tips oh, with no. their special solution and continued to wipe down every single bar of that jail door to get rid of all the paint. But I have to say after that, our, our every morning walk became very <laughs> precise. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, to make sure <laughs> what was happening in the space, each of the galleries. Yeah. Things weren't getting too artistic. You get a little yes. too artistic. For yes. uh, for your Epcot work, did you relocate to Orlando or were you just in and out? No, I did not relocate. I did go in and out, but my in and out were long periods of time. The in was long, the out was short and mm. come home, refret, go back again. But I, I ended up staying down there probably for months. Uh, wow. And a lot of us did that. Uh, would stay and not, you know, we didn't move. It wasn't, I, I don't know why, you know, it just seemed like a lot of people wasn't into the relocating move thing. We just travel back and forth. But, but I, I actually got involved with some of the other projects, home base, you know, from the Autry started beginning on it and, the Archie and the Baltimore was kind of almost simultaneous. Really? So those came that, that early after, after well, the planning and the design, it took almost about six years. You know, oh, wow. Another, and the installation was, you know, a year and a half to almost two. I had to wait for the building to be built in order for us to get in there. And that was kind of imagineering sort of branching out into, into new territory, really. Um, yes and no. I don't think it was a conscious thing that, oh, we're going to begin this area of, of project product and partner with external. I, I think it was more about Marty at the time having an affinity and a connection with Autry, Gene Autry. Mm -hmm. And the two projects that I was asked to design and work on had certain mission and vision that 
was in sync with how the WDI, the Disney vision and mission were community-based and supportive. And the Autry one, because it was literally a stone's throw away from our headquarters, right, 1401, and being it's in Griffith Park, you know, that's very much heritage and connection to Walt. And um, so Marty was the one that agreed for that to happen. And I know Claude Coates was on that team originally and a few of the other guys, but quickly, I believe, and I don't remember exactly what other projects started ramping up of our own in other locations of um, our resort. And that was, again, somehow I ended up being brought into the picture and say, well, then you, you take it. And because Claude's got to be over here and this guy's got to be over there. So lucky for me, I immediately connected with the Autry team. And as I mentioned, Joanne Hale was just an amazing woman. And so was Jackie Autry. Um, and then Jean Autry and Monty Hale. They were the four that I worked with and as the leader owner. Yeah. And then their curatorial staff was unbelievable. And the artifact management team was unbelievable. And then the Baltimore one is the same, even though it was in Baltimore. And I can't even tell you why that was so connected with the company. But um, I was, again, fortunate because it's the first time I designed a children's museum. I worked with the, um, the director of it, and we were very conscious of thinking through the content of that. And I have to say at the time, um, it was in the inner harbor of, and, and it went into the uh, fish cannery building. So it's a historical building that we couldn't touch. We couldn't do any changes within it, uh, of it. And uh, it was a good, you know, four stories high uh, structure and um, with an open atrium in the middle. But uh, um, that one, you know, was good because we had to work with the educational board of, of Maryland and I learned so much and we then chose a difficult path and went with the age bracket of zero, basically baby or, you know, one year old, two year old, all the way up to like a 12 year old. Hmm. And that's hard because now you're dealing with content, you're dealing with cognitive thinking and development. And so I think the most famous element of that whole uh, Baltimore Children's Museum was in the middle because of the atrium, we created the kids' work. And that was a deconstructed, really fun material was all deconstructed, like pipes and nets and all kinds of stuff. So it's very relatable. And it was designed 100%. And we worked with Michael Sprott, from who was the father of children's museum design, who did the, the Chicago Children's Museum. And his philosophy of you design and you learn and educate through fun. And so he was at one of our consultants for a long time and worked with us to come up with different uh, elements within. And this kid works was wonderful because the baby babies started the ground floor and they could do, you know, very simple work things with the parents. And then as you went higher and higher, your age got older, older. And so a lot of the development was in the structure of how we created, like you would actually have to walk over 30 feet of nothing, but in a, in a rope tube 
So you had to learn about fear, your courage, your confidence, uh-huh. your ability to step on certain things so you don't fall through the net. So it's the acumen of your body, you know, how you develop as well as your mind and your logic and your cognitive. So, yeah, it was pretty cool. Yeah, um, that is cool. Yeah. And yeah. and what museum is that again in Baltimore? It was the Port Discovery Baltimore Children's Museum okay. in um, the Inner Harbor in Baltimore. It's still there. Yeah. That's fantastic. So from there, from you do these museum projects, do you go from there into Paris? Is Was that your next stop? If you take a chronological, you know, Paris got laced in there somewhere in, what is it, 80, I mean, 90, 95 or 94. And I mean, a lot of us did four or five different things at the same mm-hmm. time. We, we didn't have a big Imagineering. By then, it had switched to Imagineering and it wasn't like a lot of employees. So we doubled up a lot and did different things. And I did work on Paris for a period of time, but it wasn't as... I was just producing on California side for um, the main street designer and just, you know, keeping it track, but I didn't go, I didn't go to Paris to do that job. Around that time, I would assume early nineties is when work started on the two twin projects, the Westcott and the Port Disney. Yes. Is that around that time? Yeah. Yes. And it- it finished right around when that started and finished. I then went on to the Hong Kong Disney Land Resort. And I, I always use that one as my date anchoring because I forget all my dates. But Hong Kong was the one that ended when I ended up leaving the company at 2000. Mm. So back out of that, Hong Kong took concept wise, took about maybe five, six years. Everything takes about that long. And then Westcott and Disney Seas simultaneously, our one team was tasked to create two individual high concept themed theme parks that fit one in the uh, Anaheim location and where now Disney California is. And Disney Sea was to be down at Long Beach where the um, Spruce Goose and Queen Mary was. And at that time, I believe we owned the Queen Mary. And there were concepts related to that, how that that incorporated into the Disney Seas idea. And it was really against the two cities. So the team was really tasked to, to think about one being sort of land base and the other one's a sea base. And the land base, how we came up with Westcott is, of course, it's Epcot. Brought from you know 10, 15 years later to the present relevant time and to California, and what would that feel and look like? And uh, our team, I think, created some design concepts for the same basic two halves: the modern technology side, the future side, and then the showcase equivalent, the cultural side. We switched up a few instead of doing showcase pavilions like epcot we actually blew it up on the cultural side and really created environments of that particular culture and we had south america it was clustered more so south american culture to asian culture to european culture 
And by doing that, we were able to meld a lot more richness and, and uh, various sort of textual, architectural attraction, storytelling. We can widen that up a little bit more on the culture. And we really dove deep into making it very, very uh, sort of ethereal, but yet factual, but yet real from foods to environments. And we had to lace in attractions into the cultural side, which a little more than, than Epcot did. So we had, a, we had rides in there and experiences that were very um, synonymous of that particular region of the world. Meanwhile, on the future side, we dove much deeper into like your health or your environment and I mean, the Land Pavilion did some of that storytelling about, about the land, the growing. And I think Carl Hodges and that whole section in the back did an amazing job. And that's very real, right? By um, the biosphere and the hydroponics, you know, the growing. So we took a lot of that incentive of thought. And by the time in the 90s, people were getting more aware of things. And so our future world at Westcott, uh, like the nature, we, we instead of land again, specific to an, a, a sort of a, a pavilion, we, we expanded it into the overall theme and story of nature. And nature encompassed weather to soil, to water, to everything. So we told the whole story and, and really connected it. You know, so the whole, you know, like we have the global warming thing that right. air affects so-and-so rain affects so-and-so and affects the plant growth and we even had sections where we would take the guests through rainforest and talked about the importance of that to even the redwoods so we clustered things together and it just made it more made more sense to our team to do that and we pitched it in that way and i know people to this day, I still have so many people keep asking me about that project. And there's a reason for it because it was phenomenal. It was really not only because of the content we came up with, but I put a lot of emphasis on people and the team that we pulled together. I would tomorrow, if I had something similar, I would make calls to every single one of them and say, you want to join me again on another ride? And we'd mm -hmm. do it again. It would be that. It just clicked and it was joyful to do it together. Well, who else, who else was on that team? Who else was on that project? Well, who was my partner in crime was Jan Circus, who is the executive architect. And the two of us were the creative leads on it. Randy Prince was our knight in shining armor. I always remember him. He's our project lead project manager. And he was also my project manager in the end that helped us through the world showcase gallery trying to get it open by opening day because we were so short on help and he really did a super job in helping us with that we had architects like bobby brooks who's passed away Karen armitage we had um three or four amazing demons grants with david durham you know technology pam fisher we had ruben veramontes fabulous designer we had haniel mazari who's passed away, who's amazing. Uh, Andrea Fivili. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and we had John Horney, who worked with us for a lot of the Asia concepts and others. 
Mel Manberg, Michael Sprout. We had writers galore, but it was the same team again that went jump back and forth on both just to give it give it some equal play for Disney Sea was also a phenomenal concept that Dan Guzay was the one that captured that concept, uh, Bird's Eye, and uh, he also did the Westcott one. I wanted it some similarity, but yet, you know, the content was enough difference. But the Disney Sea was about dry for wet. It's like taking the guest underwater into an experience. So it's sort of like the Seas Pavilion at Epcot, but but just exploded into mm-hmm. full-on sort of exploratory discovery, learning all of that uh, aspect of it um, that was so relevant at that time. And we introduced, just like we did in Westcott, Westcott was the one where I came up with a tag of live the dream. And it was the first time we introduced to executives to have, at the time, B&B wasn't, I mean, B&B was around, but the, you know, Airbnb, that kind of feeling, the live-in, it was putting boutique hotels into Main Street. So all of the upstairs were actually living quarters so that you can rent as, as a hotel room equivalent. And we did a whole pitch on that and people just loved it. Wow. But then the operators always said, yeah, but then you get, you know, because we hide everything we do at night, right? We don't have anybody see how we you know, power wash, how we, and then I finally pitched the idea. I said, it's to me, it's no different for than if you were living in Paris or Hong Kong and you can't sleep and you get up in the middle of the night to go for a nightcap and you see people washing, cleaning, getting ready for the next morning. And I said, I don't think the public would be upset by that. In fact, they would kind of would love to see how the magic happens at night by an amazing team that constantly resets everything, just like a city would reset and clean and wash and all the, you know, the trucks that you hear at night going through washing the streets. So I, you know, I got convinced and they went for it. But having that live in aspect, it just took it to another thinking, you know, point of view by a, a separate department group that was the hospitality group. And it became really dynamic and fun to then start thinking about how that works. And then for Disney Seas, it was also the same concept of putting, and we actually thought we would put a hotel in the ocean. So it's to create that concept for a guest that you're literally going into water. Obviously we're not, but we design it so you're high, you arrive high and then you go down into it and you're now entering into a whole nother world that you could actually go fish i mean you can go swim with the sharks you can go explore in the ocean and there would be opportunities where we would actually take you into the ocean where it was located which was also like oh my gosh how do we ever do that (laughs) and then putting a hotel underwater was the other concept that we had for disney seas that everybody loved so it was pretty amazing and again we had to do it with the same budget and same timing and then in the end, some of the um, concepts that I presented that we then was told that Anaheim is the one that we're going to focus on more. And so I put together an entire at the Anaheim Convention Center. And that was a big deal because that was when it was really public and we invited media. Everybody came and I pretty much took all the presentation work that we did and presenting to our board and 
Michael Eisner and Frank Wells and, and the board of directors and took that entire thing and took it down to the Anaheim. And I brought in over a hundred, hundred orange trees because I wanted people to understand it's going into a part of history in that property that used to have orange trees there. I, I even piped in the orange smells. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So as you're roaming around looking at all the artwork and the presentation and the individual designers and artists were all stationed at each of their areas so they could talk about it, pitch it. And um, it was a huge evening and huge success for that. Yeah. So when it got pulled, it was, it was a little difficult to kind of scratch your head and go, but, but, but <laughs> we went through all that, but and you're not going to do it. Yeah, well, how do you deal with the cancellation of a project like that when you've got so much time and emotion invested in it? It wasn't easy. Um, and a lot of us experience the same thing and scope and scale. I mean, to have two projects of that magnitude be kind of taken and shut down was a little hard because of the scale and volume and time. All of us spent, if you add it all up, it was probably about six years, five years that we spent effort and time in developing it. And uh, I think the first classical thing that everybody would think is it me, you know, I didn't do a good job. You know, all the designers, we huddled as a team to do some downloading after. And, and, you know, it's the explaining to the team that, no, it's not you guys at all. It's nothing to do with, at the end of the day, you have to realize we put our hearts into it. And that's probably why in my legend speech, when I put blood, sweat, and tears and the love that we put into it, yeah, that's exactly what they want us to do and what we should do because that's how we're able to come up with these fantastical thoughts and ideas and make them happen. And we make them happen. And that's the other part. Like Shanghai is a perfect example. I mean, you think about how that project came about. It's like almost impossible, but there it is. It's standing. And Epcot mm -hmm. is standing for, and that was like one of the fastest three and a half years we put that thing together. It's still standing. So I, you know, you, you lick your wounds and you kind of talk about it to try to get it out and make sure the team knows it's not their fault and that it's all business at the end of the day. It's, it's a, a financial decision and it has to work and it didn't work. And, um, what was it that, what was it that wound up killing it off? Was it just a matter of cost? I think, um, uh, you know, I'm not in those behind the doors, but if I had to guess, like everything, it, it had to have a, a revenue stream and a, and a return that made sense for the company, uh, for the investment. And I think there were also timing related to the cities, the timing of Anaheim, the city planning. It was a major city planning, which ultimately one piece of it did happen for the California Adventure, which is the, the widening of the freeways, the parking lot. It wasn't there before. That was all started by when Westcott came into the picture and we had to think and work with the development team and the real estate, um, Disney real estate group and their whole entitlement group. It took many years to figure all that. So while we were designing, they were trying to figure that out. And by the time we presented it and did that whole convention, that was when, you know, the perfect storm, everything came together. We thought that everybody was in alignment and 
the politics worked, the finances worked for enough for our executives and the and the Anaheim political executives to feel that this could happen. But but I don't know, you know, why Michael Eisner and Frank Wells ultimately on the board decided that it's not that was a tough one because I, you know, being on the East Coast at the time as a kid, I was following the development and these two projects were both so exciting and you would see the art in the annual report and it just looked so exciting and really sort of down my alley. So they were really projects that I think a lot of people are still curious about or still highly invested in. The idea yeah. of you know what could have been what what was it going to be like what was what was going to be there you know what uh, well yeah. I have at least digitally I have a lot of the art that actually told those stories as to what was going to be there. Well, what we were, were some of your favorite elements for you know people who might wonder what what was going to be there? What were some of your favorite things? I think one of the ones that I was just blown away with, but I have to say we scratched our head and hoped that we could achieve it, was the nature one. Because mm. it was so encompassing of so many levels of story we had to tell. And it had to have a certain uh, believability, right? The, the quality of it is not just fake. We couldn't fake certain things. So how were we going to do that? The concept art that, that was done did the job in explaining how a guest of scale going through one space and then experiencing a change in climate, smell, texture, and then we had to tell the story to get you into another space and how that all connected. Because that was the whole point, was we wanted to tell the entire, not bite-sized story, but the whole story, how one thing affects another in life. And the nature pavilion was a good example to do that. It had technology, but it was all hidden. It was really about life and environments. And we had to be believable. So we couldn't do plastic plants, you know, <laughs> that the guests walk by and then you could touch it and you go, oh, well, that was kind of a letdown. So there was a lot of experts that we had to bring in and ask the question, is this doable? And I think that was the part that I just loved about the team, how they were so vested. They were creative individuals that went to Art Center, went to you know California College of Arts, or went to whatever, RISD, but yet they suddenly became the, the botanist or the you know the um, agricultural expert because they had to learn about it to understand, well, how are you going to deliver on the concept promise? that you're going to create a rainforest that I guess my mom can walk through and go, wow, this feels different. You know, it's mm. like my hair starting to, you know, fall. it's just all of those things was the depth of it. It was what excited, I think our team. And I think when the word got out, that's what excited people that got snippets of it. And then through time it's held its excitement all these years by people still asking me about that. And then on the cultural side, it's the depth and the, it's literally like you are there. And to have some of these artists, like 
Andrea Favilli creating the epic artwork that he did was like, my gosh, it was like the, the, um, the onion domes of Russia connected with, you know, the, the uh, Campanile over here. And then this over there. I mean, some people may say it looks like a dog's breakfast, you know, how are people going to separate? But that was the challenge, right? For our designers to then take it to the next level, which we were all getting ready to get into is we took it to a concept level, a concept design level, concept beyond that concept design level, ready to move into development level. Feasibility was already thought through. Feasibility schematics, you know, we were already there. Um, we validated it and we backed it inside out with the budget that we were given to hit that mark, to hit that needle. But the challenge was still there. How are we going to do that? The concept and then the artwork that came from Hani El Masri is one of my favorite pieces. Just the way he, his technique of watercolors, but just his sensibility of how the texture of all the different countries that he wanted to express, not just Egypt, but others that made sense. And we had to do that too. We had to figure out what country work with what country and that in the end, which ones don't we use and how are we going to validate not including so-and-so and somebody going to get upset about that. And I mean, we haven't even gotten in deep with that, but we had um, advisors. We had people that worked with us to think it through. So it was very insightful and um, deep and rich in the way that, we thought about it and the team was ready to, to prove it out. It was ready to handle it. I even, Jan and I, and this was something that Marty, you know, Marty, a lot of people, I don't know how many people know how, how cheeky Marty is. He, he had a sense of humor about him that you either have to understand or you probably go, oh my gosh, he's angry at me, but maybe not. He's just, that's just the way. And same with Hench. The two of them really had that cheekiness about them and they were playful. Hmm. People were playful. We were all very playful back then. And we worked hard, but we also knew how to play hard all within the same building, same time of that eight to 10 to 12 hours day that we would all be there. Wow, and that was yeah. the sauce. We, we, we took things seriously, but we didn't take things seriously. We knew how to, to have levity and i don't know if we have that right now um that's a whole nother story but marty allowed jan and i presented to him an idea he wanted us to do an update for wdi employees of westcott and um, mainly westcott at that time and um he said put together a presentation and then tell me when and we'll call the sort of like the all hands thing and we'll get everybody in so again, our team is never a straight line. So we, we got cheeky about it too. And Jan's English, he's actually Scottish and I'm Hong Kong, British. And our sense of humor is odd. Um, <laughs> from the Americans, I will say that. Uh, so he and I clicked, he, he's one of my best friends. We still are. But, um, so we came up with a concept of delivering the entire Westcott project through a concept of Jan and I being 
in the radio state or the TV station. And we were the anchors and we would report out and we would then pass it to the field reporter, which were each of the designers or writers of each of the land areas. And they would report out their land. So it's the same like if you stood in a conference room and you had the board and you had the artwork pinned up and the guy would stand there or the girl would stand there and talk about it. It's too boring for us. So we had the artwork and you got a taste of that. But we ended up having each of the folks be actors. So we did the entire presentation, filmed it. And beyond the filming part, Jan and I being in the station, we would have this back and forth silliness between us. But while we did that, site plans were shown, comments were given, every detail of the project was shown. Mm -hmm. But it was delivered under the auspices of we were the anchors and we were had our own comment. But the silliness that both <laughs> Jan would change his, his outfit, every take we would have that <laughs> would be on us. He would have a certain look. You know, he's in a suit. He's a good-looking gentleman. I would have my outfit. And then as soon as the camera goes off and comes back, we're in a different outfit. And he would have a different look. And he got cheekier and sillier it's the, the british humor is silly mm -hmm. and that's silly and we were both and the entire team was on board with it and we all and it was uh, steve spiegel that was our writer he wrote the entire script and he was a genius it was fabulous and our team filmed everybody just did our own thing and uh i mean it's hard to explain it i have it i have that. i have that video and Marty, uh, Marty and Mickey Steinberg was at the time Marty's partner. And Tony Baxter was the executor of the entire portfolio. The three of them are in on it. So they can't, they can't escape. They were filmed in the beginning. They bookended the opening and the closing of this video. <laughs> and they sanctioned it. And, um, and it was hilarious. So we went through the whole thing. And by the time we finished, all the concepts were presented. It was done in a fashion that was basically a, a storytelling movie with these people that were reporting on these concepts and how it was done. And I thought it was hilarious and brilliant. And um, I think overall people liked it, but they were curious. They went, huh? But where's the pinned up board that we, and I thought, God, you know, come on guys. Some you gotta fun. roll with it. Just roll with it. Roll with it. Yes, roll with it. That's yeah. fun. But Marty went for it, and he totally blessed it, and he was hilarious in it, actually, and what he said, and Mickey said, and and Tony Baxter said in the end. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I have to see that sometime. That sounds fun. Yeah, it was very fun. So uh, you go from there. You go to Hong Kong in the, the sort of pre early planning days of Hong Kong. Yeah. And, and, uh, well, what was it, what was it like doing a project that, you know, hits close to home kind of, well, it is home. Um, mm -hmm. well, um, it wasn't even pre it was, uh, Robert Coltrane, Mr. Mm -hmm. Legend also. Also a legend. Yeah. yeah. He is one of my key designers. And, um, we worked 
uh, the the assignment was come up with a theme park concept for for Hong Kong, and Hong Kong was the location. And by the way, our I and Robert and a whole handful of other like Karen Armitage and Ahmed Jafari, Jan Circus again, Brock Thurman, all these people, they all we we went and followed the development team and business team and traveled all over Asia looking for the location, initial location. And we all wanted Hong Kong, of course, but at the in the beginning the deal wasn't uh, happening so well. But towards the end of all the the researching and traveling and looking at all kinds of stuff, Hong Kong came through, and so the order was by to our team. Okay, we got the we got the the place, so let's go for it. And it's going to be a Magic Kingdom with the basic principles of Magic Kingdom, and what could it be? And so our design began and. Because it's entering into a brand new region, and actually Hong Kong is sort of like a gateway, you might say, to all of China, right? In its location and where it's going to go after the ninety-nine year lease is over, and et cetera. So what's what's happening in the future is inevitable for Hong Kong. We decided that the logic for how to introduce it would be a Magic Kingdom, such as Anaheim, have the Anaheim bases of. Thought and the hub and spoken wheel and how the land spinned off and we talked about you know Tomorrowland, Fantasyland was logical. Adventureland was a good one to put in. Westernland doesn't quite work because the the connection, the relevancy of of the West is a little harder to connect、um, for for Chinese and Hong Kong. And it's the same, same concept in China. And that's why we didn't do Westernland in, in the Shanghai project. So yeah, we went through that whole process, and and our team designed an amazing park.、Uh, we had a, a a budget to abide by, and、um, we did, and we successfully completed it to the level of concept design, feasibility, schematic, all that thought through. And、uh, I took I was the lead on the creative, and went with the business like Wing Chow and Steve Tight. Justin Green was the executor on the entire portfolio, and we all went to Hong Kong, pitched and pitched. And I remember very clearly two, three days worth of pitching to all the prefectures area and、um, all the different groups of people that would be affected by the location it was going in. And we did it in the governor's mansion. And after, at the end, it was sort of the deal was struck, and it was. It was signed, and there was a picture that I had. All of us sort of coming out of the governor's mansion, very success, and it was a go. And that pretty much, you know, short plus and minus some time, but it took us pretty much to two thousand. And at that point, I had not mentioned it to anyone, to Marty, no. But I, I had decided I needed to go, and that was twenty-two years with the company. Uh, and it was hard because it was going home. I would have moved to Hong Kong and finished it out and opened it. It and my mom was very happy to know that I would be coming. <laughs> I didn't even tell her, but I had made the decision that I I need to leave and not only leave the company but also、um, the area,、uh, Los Angeles. And at that point,、um, my two girls were sixteen and ten years old, and.、Um, My husband. Then we went sort of all over. We did a concept board of where we wanted to go and targeted Vermont, 
and this beautiful Manchester village became our home for, we bought a home there and owned it for 12 years, lived there for about nine and a half years. And uh, one daughter went to Skidmore, became a graphic designer and is a oh. producer today. Yes, she's in the industry. And same with her husband, who's also in the industry as a very good artist. And then um, the second one, they're six years apart. And the second one, by the time it was the ninth year in Vermont, um, she applied for Art Center and got in. And she's also in the business. She's a wonderful, she works in animation. Oh, and wow. Great designer. And her husband's also a fabulous animator as well. And so we thought, okay, we did one for one kid. We need to do it for the other. So I, so yeah, one went to New York because she graduated from Skidmore in graphics and then ended up landing a job right away in New York City. So she moved to New York and then we came back to California. And that's when the word quickly got out that I was coming back and got that ping from uh, Bob Weiss. And said, when you get back in town, yeah, let's uh, go for a drink. And I, I want to talk to you about something. And I kind of heard rumors about Shanghai at that point. Mm -hmm. But it was Bob that straight out said, yeah, we're entering into something that's not approved yet. And this was like fall of um, fall of 20, I mean, yeah, 2009, fall mm -hmm. of 2009. Because Paige had to go to art school, started in September. So we had to be back here by summer. And uh, met with Weiss, talked about it. And he said, come on in, you know. It's not a proof, but maybe you could spend half the time and just work on it a little bit. And, and that was September-ish. And before you know it, you know, I was like full-time. And I went in on it as my in my company as a consultant. And um, by 2010, February, I think, or something, the project got approved and mm -hmm. that was a, a win for everyone. So, and that was when we never stopped just, just fast forward. And how many years later, um, six years later, we finished. How do you program a park for, you know, we talked the last time about growing up, you didn't have really any Disney exposure because of where you grew up. And I would imagine Shanghai is even more removed from that than Hong Kong would have been. Not having any exposure to any of these films, any of these characters, how do you program a park for an audience that doesn't know really what it's getting into? Excellent question. I don't think we all think enough sometimes when we get and this is for anybody, when you get assigned to a project with whatever company you're working for, I do always say today to a lot of the kids that I mentor or lecture on, you really do need to stop and think about where it's going, who's the audience, even if it is for East Coast, West Coast, North, South, if it's all in the United States, it's different environments and different interests by people. And it would be silly and short thinking if you don't take that time to be aware and understand who your audience is, because in the end, we're not designing for ourselves. We're designing for them. So for something like that, such an extreme, just like we did for France and Tokyo, you know, we go through a whole process when you're home base America, you know, cultural 
classes and some people would take up language and really get into it. Um, but at the end of the day, most everyone that's on the project would have had some form of orientation of that culture. And it's still not the same, you know, until you go there, just like any vacation, once you go and you really experience it, you go, whoa, I didn't think, you know, that's how it was. So that was the shock when they got over there. It's a shock both ways. Shock for our people over there, suddenly being in an environment that is so foreign, everything down to how you hail a taxi, to how you shouldn't say certain things and how you, you know, whatever, how you, you know, sit and how you eat and how you, okay, if the person next to you is burping really loud, that's just <laughs> what they do. To the other way, for the Chinese to look at all this Suddenly, you know, hundreds of people showing up at their doorstep. How do we deal with them? So it was a cultural shock both ways. And I talk about that, that time was spent for me anyway, with my teams of understanding how do you meld? How do you harmonize the two cultures, the Disney culture and the Chinese culture? And that's where in the beginning, the logic is, you know, like if you go put a park in France, we have to have croissants. Well, maybe you don't, <laughs> you know what I mean? There's some that are cliche that cliche is good, you know, works, but then there's times where you kind of have to think a little deeper than that. And that's the same with China, you know, the classic, most people just surface, surface things that they think it would work, but not mm -hmm. really subtlety. It's the nuances that is more important. And that's when that ADDC authentically Disney, distinctly Chinese that Bob Iger coined was so brilliant that it caught people off guard, our team off guard. The Chinese didn't know. It was our, our leadership that told us to use that as part of our leadership thinking or our concepts. And it was hard for people to understand that. But how he said it was exactly expressing that nuance, that subtlety that you need to think about. And I think the areas that I ended up somehow being assigned to had to really hone in on that subtlety because I didn't have the Tron mega fast track ride that was the anchor and mm -hmm. the Tron, which is very Western world, you know, it's the East, I mean, it's the American uh, or the story, right, of that and the technology. So you can wow people with the lighting, the color, all that. Or you had the Pirates, which is very specific to a storytelling of a movie and a connection to that. Um, Fantasyland um, was also very much of, you know, how do we express those stories of fantasy or storytelling? I think the areas that I got, which is the castle in the beginning, I did a part of the main entry in the beginning, enough that I was able to talk about Marceline, a middle America don't mean anything to any Chinese. There's no connection. It's, it's not because they're discriminating on it. No, they just don't get it, right? They don't have any. It's like Americans suddenly being thrown into a tiny Chinese village and you're mm -hmm. going, oh, I don't have a connection with that. So the logic was, what's, what is the connection for Chinese and how do we bring and welcome the Chinese? Well, Fab Five, they love Fab Five. They love Mickey. They love Minnie. They love Donald Duck. So let's use that as your entry, your welcome. And it's a no-brainer. And you design the buildings. You don't have to have a theme, so to speak. It's just Main Street. And that's where all the Fab Five lives. 
and you have to do the merchandise, the emporium, all that becomes the content. So that worked. And then the garden, I mean, the hub was a place where I think the story behind the 421, the four grandparents, two parents, and a child. And the Chinese culture is very much of, they live in a concrete jungle, especially Shanghai. It's an amazing city. And every, you know, Chinese, they're always looking for a nature environment so they could be out. They love outdoors. They love to walk. They love to dance outside. And so you have the grandparents and the child, the baby, and they can't go on Tron. They can't go on Pirates. They can't, you know, maybe even go on any of the fantasy rides. So what do they do? Well, they love being outdoors. They love to see the flowers. And, you know, we're, Disney is synonymous with garden and flowers, and we do such a beautiful job. So that became sort of the foundation to why the hub ended up becoming, well, maybe we do gardens of imagination, called it that. That took a while to get to that name. And <laughs> by doing that, it got bigger. And why it got bigger is because I was able to convince our executives that, okay, so you have your babies, your babies aren't baby babies, always, you get the toddlers, and they still can't go on Tron, they can't go on Pirates. And the grandparents are in their 50s and 60s. So they're really not old. But yet, that's their job, watch the kid. So we put in some AB rides, which can I pull the carousel and the Dumbo into the garden. And now we've created a land. And that's the first time ever that it became a land, Gardens of a Nation land. And the size of giving those two uh, attractions on diagonal was purposeful. So when the guests came in from Mickey Avenue, they immediately see the carousel, weenie, pull you over there, do that thing. And then you get the castle way over there. And then you get the other weenie, which is the Dumbo. And there's moving parts it so people get drawn to it but in between is magnificent beautiful landscape flowers everything of the season and chinese with the feng shui water all this stuff water is very important so we ended up putting in a little water body in there so that we could do some very soft lighting and water is always good for chinese people they love water because water in chinese the word is also synonymous to money it's money. So it's always good to have water. And then, so that worked. And then the castle, okay, we'll do the castle. We repeat. Is it, you know, Walt Disney World, Magic Kingdom Castle? What is it? And that was the other thing was subtlety, authentically Disney, distinctly Chinese. China does not have fortresses. They don't have castles. Just, they don't. The only thing closest to it is the Great Wall. Sure which has the, you know, crenellations on top and it's, you know, it's a fortress. It's the people out. That's about it. But there's no building like in Europe. That's why the Europe castle doesn't look like castles. It's right. A castle. So they had, because Tom Morris worked on that with Tony Baxter and they had to change it to make it so it worked for Paris um, people and culture. So the aspect of home and that because Chinese people are very home-based, family-based. So then I said, why not make it into a whole family of the princesses? And so it's the first time ever that we took away from, walked away from the single Sleeping Beauty, you know, Snow White, whatever castle, and went into an entire castle. And so we had to come up with a name for that. And that took forever too, you know, Chinese <laughs> Storybook Castle. 
and the size and scale just kept growing 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 because you've heard about the chinese want everything the biggest widest tallest and that's true they do because they want the bragging rights and so that castle definitely has the bragging rights of scale size and it is the only one that has the three stories actually has four but the three stories of a restaurant for the second floor entire footprint and then which is the um the same restaurant they have in walt disney world and then the third floor was the first time we put in the uh, walkthrough attraction and to your question or point earlier there is a connection by the chinese people to disney with one piece which was um snow white so snow white Open in 90, uh, 1936, and same time in Shanghai, the Wang brothers, which were animators at that time, had inspiration for that film, and they then was inspired to create the Princess Iron Fan, which is the very first Chinese animated film of the equivalent to Snow White, wow. the princess. And so there's that connection. So. I said for that walkthrough, we do Snow White as our first storytelling so that the connection, subtlety, again, of distinctly Chinese and Disney culture connection, it made sense. So the PR people, everybody, I, I always work with all of them. So they, they have to have the words and the reason to how to ping it out to the public. So all that made sense to them. So they leveraged that and they were able to ping it out and go, hey, here's the connection and here. And it worked. I mean, it was on social media. It was all of that. It, it just was good. And then I got put on to the to um, Disney Town, and that was fun. I've never done. I never designed a, a retail entertainment district, and I loved working with all the vendors. We had forty one vendors in the end that opened full, but with the forty one, every one we had to have five to seven backups in oh, case wow. that one. So I did a lot of pitching of Disney Town, um, the concept, but that was fun. That 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 had to have its own identity, so it's not connected to the theme park because we were right there. So I couldn't leverage any of the Disney typical things and made it all Disney-ish because the park needed to have the Disney-ish thing. So it's that subtlety again, and I pulled in a lot of Shanghai heritage of architecture as well as uh, old um, graphics that were very synonymous of Shanghai, but then put it into context of the five districts. And the five districts gave the alliance team when they worked with vendors so that they could pitch it in a way that here's the, you know, the Broadway Avenue and it needed to have the sort of very high-end feeling as people went to the, to the uh, theater. So that's where you had your... Pandora, your Sephora, and all of the product and, and uh, the jewelry restaurants, Chow Pai Fook was there and all that, and then et cetera, et cetera. So that was cool. I yeah. really, really enjoyed that. Well, it has a very different, for people who don't know the resort, uh, Disney Town is a, has a layout that's very different from other sort of similar mm -hmm. downtown Disney kind of place. It's right up next to the park it's parallel to main street basically correct and it is the first time we thought of that that's only phase one there's actually mm -hmm. five phases to that that oh. um, district that we had master planned it as the continue to grow the the resort but phase one that is absolutely correct we paralleled it against the main street 
And the idea was that we had the anchor, which was the Walt Disney Grand Theater in the North End. And that theater was positioned so that it backed up right against the um, uh, Gardens of Imagination hub area and sandwiched between Tomorrowland and um, Mickey Avenue. And the point was we would toggle the theme park guests during the day, unbeknownst to them, outside of the park boundaries and into the RDE by way of a route that took them into the theater and they could watch certain um, attractions and shows. And then they would be taken back out into the park. And then at nighttime, that whole gate would basically close and the theater would then be ready for the nighttime Broadway theater show, which we opened with the Lion King performance, one of a kind, all done in Mandarin, which is mm -hmm. really cool. Yeah. And then so all the restaurants were anchored at that end as well, supported that whole attitude feeling of that district uh, atmosphere. Well, and you came up with a very clever way to credit your team. It's sort of the Main Street window idea, but not, not Main Street windows. That's right. You know, that's one thing as a leader on a team. At the end of it, when we're all done, you kind of just slip away. And you're so tired by then anyway, and you do slip away. But you, you might have your own little party with a team and you know, you congratulate each other and you go, wow, that was an amazing six years, five years, two years of time. And everyone just sort of moves on and we don't get the ticker tape when we come home. Uh, mm -hmm. We go back into our office and sleep for about a week. And then off you go on to another project. And I've always wondered that's not too fair. And I wish we were like the movie industry where all every single human being, including a, even a dog, if it shows up in a movie is credited. And I always wondered how come we can't do that. And um, yeah, so I, I sneakily, <laughs> if that's a word, uh, decided to, I had basically my base team was about 40 individuals that, pretty much took care of led as well as did all of the divisions of work that we needed to do for Disney town. So not necessarily any of the consultants that we brought in, but these were our guys. And um, I wanted them to know that, that, that totally grateful for everything they did. So I um, designed these, these, I, I, I like to doodle and a lot of my own personal work has a lot of sort of filigree feel to it and it's very free-handed. So I free-handed these four individual concept designs, medallions. You could, if you looked at it, it looks like medallions and they're circular, they're rectangular. And um, I pitched it to my project manager. He didn't know this, but what I did woven into the, the detailing of these medallions are very sort of art deco, art nouveau, myself styling is I wove into these four, all 40 of my team members into 10, 10, 10, 10. And I blended their line of the way their names were, it became part of the filigree of each of the designs. 
So at first take, you think it's all part of the filigree of the design. And so when I pitched it to my project manager, because this was quite near the end of our timing, he, of course, said, we don't have money for this. And I, I tried hard without having to throw the actual hammer on his head with it. And I finally said, okay, well, this is something that I think is really meaningful. And I then showed it to him, how I wove all the names into the designs. And all the names are upside down, sideways. So you can't even literally look at it and you could read it from top to bottom. It's, it's all, all which way. And I showed him where his name was. And I went, well, that's too bad because I really would have liked to have this done so that you, along with everybody else, could be credited for what you all did. And guess what? I got the money. So <laughs> it helped to follow through on a concept and pitch it in a way <laughs> and play to the heartstrings, but also, you know, be a little bit aggressive about it. But he made it happen and we found a wonderful local ironwork vendor that understood what I wanted to do. And they, they um, created these medallions out of wrought iron. And because of the filigree element of it, one thing that we're very careful about when we design railings, any of those kinds of things with metal, we have this entrapment issue where we don't want any adult and or let alone children's fingers get caught in railings. And so we have a very specific radius size, like a little ball that's of a certain size. And we have to design around that size. And I get it. And I think it makes total sense. I didn't want that because that would have limited my design and uh, the names. Because the names, as you know, when you write your name out, it's a character, it's very thin, some of the areas. So my resolve to that is I did not have any of these four um, medallions, which, by the way, ended up averaging about six feet diameter to nine feet in length of size and seven feet. Um, I didn't, so I had them all mounted uh, high up on each of some of my facade buildings in four of my districts of the five. So no one will ever touch it. No one will ever be able to get get to it, let alone our operators and or maintenance people. All they have to do is hose it if they want because it's metal. And so that worked great. So to the day it opened, only my 40 team members knew about it because I shared with them the design and showed them where their names were so they could bring their family and point to it. And go, that's my name up there. But none of the operators and maintenance knew except for one, two operators because their name's on it too. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, so they knew, but, um, and they approved it because it was up there and it mm -hmm. was, all of them were averaging 45, 50 feet up off the ground. And I have to say on the day that before it opened, uh, I had the execs walk through and it was Bob Iger, Tom Staggs, Bob Chapek was there and all the entourage came and I walked them through the whole Disney town up and down and I showed them, you know, everything up, all the murals, et cetera. And I remember Bob Iger stopped and he pointed to one of them that were mounted. He goes, oh, man, that's beautiful. I love that. And I went, thank you. I'm glad you like that. <laughs> <laughs> he pointed to one of those girls with a name. So I went, okay, if only you had your binoculars. <laughs> exactly. Right, right. <laughs> and Bob Weiss didn't even know I did that. So he heard it for the first time when I shared that story in one of my my 
I think he interviewed me and I said it. That's funny. Well, what was it like having your team? You know, we, we started, you know, all these stories with, you were kind of the young, the young person on the team back on the land on Rowley's team. And, you know, now you have your own team. What was it like being in charge like that? It happened so gradually that if I had to, you know, specifically hone in on something, I, it would have been hard. And I'm so glad that it was gradual because it would have been a shock if I was thrown in like overnight and said, okay, you're going to handle this. And it's not even a team of one or two or three or, you know, hundreds. And at, by the time I got to Shanghai and other projects, it was thousands and let alone internal, but you also had to deal with external consultants like architects and, and um, engineers and et cetera, as, as well as vendors you had to talk their language and kind of do all of that and on top of that you had to be conscious of what you're in what you're responsible for and i think i was in the well billions that at the end if i added everything up i, I never thought or got nervous and thinking like that or just psyching myself out it was so ca- casual in my career that and maybe it's my character, my personality. I, I never had an issue of being with people, working with people, and giving directions on stuff. And I think it was the World Showcase at that time when I was doing the galleries that probably the aspect or the concept of a producer came about and became a little bit more official. Is And you think about it, you know, a producer just means that you do the, the thing, right? You produce what it is that you designed. So I designed it and I produced it, meaning I worked with a bunch of talented people in building, whether it be a, a set piece or a prop or a mount or an artifact or a graphic. But I knew enough that I could give the direction to go, the color should be a little more like this or the type font isn't right or the mock-up isn't right. So eventually people believed in you I believed in me enough that what I gave direction for had meaning and it worked and the executives liked the end result. So before you know it, you know, the ball kept rolling and then, okay, let's have you do this one and let's have you do that one. And pretty soon it was the people got more and more and more. <laughs> it just became <laughs> more people and more responsibility, you know, first it was this and now it's a whole attraction area then it's a land and then it's a whole park and then whole resort and then it became a portfolio mm-hmm. but you've built this whole yeah. sort of network of mentees of you know all across the world basically yes i have and i'm so so happy with this um this is like one of my biggest i think reward to me that uh and i i encourage every one of them no matter how young or old they are that they should not do what I did was wait this long to be conscious of mentoring someone. And I asked all of them, this group that I have, which is the global connections group. I asked all of them, whoever you are, you can still support somebody else and mentor. If somebody is needing it, then do it and begin that effort because paying forward needs to happen from the day you're born, in my opinion, to the day you die. It's just, one of those that's how we continue a legacy that's how we're going to continue stories and knowledge and experience and belief and 
confidence, you know, all those layers that come with not just delivering something and learning how to deliver something. It's about being a human. How do you, how do you be kind to somebody or how do you speak to somebody? It's not easy, right? The complexity of now, especially the world is so much smaller that we need to have that understanding of how do we lend a hand to somebody. You could take them, you know, you need to lead them to the waterhole, but I never take them to the point where literally feeding them the content or doing the work. Because in the end, you have to prove that you can also hold up your end. Is that I can lead you to the water hole, but you need to figure out how to drink it and make sure you're doing the right thing for yourself so that you can then help somebody else. And um, it's a rewarding thing to see and to know when someone that you have just lend a hand for one thing. I always say just open one door and they have to step through it. And they have to prove once they step through it that they're worthy of whatever it is they're going. And when they are and they come back to me and go, guess what? I just got this and I just got that. I just got this promotion. And it's just so fun to hear their excitement and to know that they're on their way. It's like I one time I have to tell the story. Probably all parents would notice when I was in Vermont and the kids were smaller than and there was a, a sparrow family that was making a nest up in the eve and you just wonder how on earth can they you know do this incredible nest with all these little birdies babies inside there and it's just sitting hanging off of the sea and we all would get every day could look at it and look at it and we could hear the chirping and they get louder louder so the babies are all growing and one day the kids we all went up and looked at it and the nest was not up there anymore it was on the ground and there was nothing there and they just said, what happened? I said, well, the day is going to be like you guys one day. <laughs> the nest is going to fall and you need to fly. That's it, you know? So the mom and the dad were out there feeding the babies and teaching them like, okay, the time is going to come when you guys are going to get too heavy and mm-hmm. the nests are going to fall. And at that point is what's going to tell you it's time to go. And you need to go. <laughs> right. so you better that, be able to fly. Yeah, their eyes got a little big, like, what do you mean? We have to go. (laughs) Well, yeah, the day will come. And sure enough, there they are. You know, my girls are all out there on their own and they're doing fantastic and they have their lives. So it's just a, you know, continues and they need to teach and they are. I've actually pulled both my kids in on some of my mentoring sessions and lecturing and they've talked and it's great. Yeah, that's how it should be. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, after all this, you wind up back in Hong Kong, uh, in Hong Kong again, and uh, working on that park. Well, what was it like going back? And it was, it was kind of surreal, actually, and double surreal. Is you know, finishing Shanghai is one thing, and that was also my heritage. So that was kind of cool to get a close up on my parents growing up there, and then really sort of reliving through their eyes a little bit and seeing what they told me about and I actually could experience it. It was quite emotional for me. And then Hong Kong to think that they want to send me back there and to open up a, an imaginary office for Asia based in Hong Kong. I mean, that's like once in a lifetime experience. So I couldn't say no to Bob Weiss who asked me to do this. So I went and um, 
with the task of a little bit different, you know, leading the expansion projects, which one of them was the castle mm. and Moana, Marvel and um, Arendelle. And then the other job was I actually ended up working as a functional manager, leading the creative studio for the Asia side and trying to come up with strategies um, and figure out how do we connect our region together, which is Hong Kong, Shanghai and, and Tokyo. And um, that was fun. I, 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 I'm, I'm very strategic oriented. And by that time, I had enough years and confidence and experience with the company and understanding you know, how the company thinks and expansion and then understanding the project side, how that works. And having had the opportunity to work with so many amazing people and having my own group, my global group of people that are in, what is it? I have people in nine countries that I talk with every month and um, it kind of gave me the depth, right? And the confidence and the thought process of how can I help to figure out to connect these regions together so the talent have the ability to travel between the regions to support each other mm. and um, to expand their development, their creative aspects of career growth, but also at the same time supporting projects and then um, giving life to each area and supporting each other. So that was, I, I really uh, appreciated the effort that the executives gave me and Bob supported me on that and in, in doing all of it. And so that was spent two and a half years on that. And, um, and I, I think I took it to a certain level and I came back and then they put me onto Paris and had me work on that region and, and working with David Wilson and that whole fantastic group that they've been doing over there because they had, uh, finally, uh, the company owned the Paris uh, resort. And uh, with that, the expansion projects came, which meant, you know, the resource had to expand. And so I mm -hmm. did a lot of working with that team to grow their resource, to introduce them to various things and pull together various networking sessions, which I also love doing. And I did it in one in Amsterdam, which I've never been, love that city, and I pulled it off. And then I did another one in, in Paris, which I have been, but never got to spend much time in Paris because I'm always fly in for the job, fly out, fly back in. Actually, for that one, I flew into Paris twice in one week. <laughs> that was really amazing. Yeah. You mentioned for Hong Kong, the castle. What inspired the decision to change the castle at Hong Kong? I think Shanghai did it first because um, it opened the door for the receptiveness by our executives mm -hmm. to move away from the heritage of the single princess sort of st uh, story angle and allow because of the connection to the Chinese culture of understand and not, you know, having a fortress kind of a feeling and particular one princess but about the home and the relationship of all the princesses that continuance into hong kong worked because it's still chinese culture with a slight difference because hong kong chinese environment culture has a has a little more of a western global sort of a cosmopolitan influence because of the british rule and um, the way the hong kong chinese think and 
a little different from the mainland Chinese. So, but yet they're connected and attached and a little bit of a rivalry. So when I started thinking about the Hong Kong, the mandate was make it bigger. So make it bigger means all kinds of things. It could be all whatever. But I did have a feeling being from Hong Kong and Hong Kong being my home and the change in its political dynamics that it's going through and will be going through and will be changing soon or is changing has a certain depth for me. Um, so I talked a lot with the marketing team, the communications team, and we talked about how this castle is not only meaningful for the company and the legacy of a park, a resort that Walt built, that icon, that meanie, you know, all of that still remains. But there was something more to this one in my mind. It needed to give a sense of hope to the people of Hong Kong. And I think people around the world look at Disney as a sense of hope because of, you know, what the company stands for, that the joy it gives to people. And I took it to heart. And I think that premise on top of what the people are going through, and this was before even COVID hit, so it made even more sense to have hope. So I wanted a castle that could soar up into the heavens. So the subtlety of, you know, the Chinese feeling of, you know, the, the whole yin and yang and the heaven and earth is very important and the five elements of the Chinese culture. And so I embedded all of that into it and carried, continue to carry the idea that we're not really going back to a single princess anymore because it's about inclusion. And the story just meant so easily, it worked so well with the relevancy of today's time, of inclusivity, equity, all of that stuff. And so I didn't have any issue with pitching this idea of having all the princesses be represented in the Hong Kong castle. Um, because of that angle. But the twist I made on the Hong Kong from Shanghai is by that time, we had the 13th uh, princess added to the the, uh, story. So that was already a good bragging rights over Shanghai. But but the pitch I did to Bob Iger, which made me sweat a little, and um, I pitched it to Bob Weiss first and he trusts me and he believes in me, although he had a little bit of uncertainty about why I wanted to do this, but he let me go with it. And he said, well, go ahead and present it and and let's see what happens. And what I presented was, it is the first and only castle that do not have a likeness. I shouldn't say it like that. I think some of the other castles didn't have the same. Shanghai had the likeness of all the 12 princesses embedded into the castle from murals. This one, I didn't want any face of any of the princesses to be represented, but rather I wanted that that understanding that it's not about race, it's not about color, it's not about hair, it's not about eyes, it's not about anything, it's about human. And it's about stories that resonated through time. And I, I took each of the 13 princess symbols and applied it to each of the 13 domes and the finials. And each of the domes had a shape that represented each of the princess stories and and culture that they come from. And I took the patterns that of each of the girls and put it onto the dome and the architecture. And each of the color 
of them. We created a very graphic representation of it. And I worked with all the theme finishing teams. And we create, created a whole beautiful palette of very pastel, subtle representation of each of the girls' colors. And so it's the three, right? It's the symbol, color, and pattern represented the girls. And um, the concept was a two-phase. I had the motive to say down the road when we have our own personal devices and everything is 30 foot off the ground is where it's the perfect focal point that you could take your phone and actually take a picture of that pattern or of that finial or of the color scheme. And it would work with an app that we would develop so that in the end, you could actually go home or stand wherever you may be in the park and dive deeper into that particular princess story without having to read a plaque or without mm -hmm. having to go somewhere and read a brochure. So it's all right there at your, so that's today's time. That's today's technology. Why not use it? And it's, a, it's not even AR, it's not even QR. It's just straightforward an app that you could do and it's very easily achievable. So that was like part of the phase two that I wanted for that castle. And so phase one was really just creating a beautiful environment of that space externally so that it would work with all our live entertainment team that they could do their nighttime spectacular. But yet when there is no spectacular, that castle is spectacular and it mm -hmm. meant something to the people of Hong Kong. And so it ended up developed with different people's point of view, designers point of view, and it became what it did ended up. And Bob Iger, Loved the idea of the different colors. Thank goodness <laughs> he did. <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't. I. I when I. I'd wondered if it was at all controversial because you know no, no Disney park has ever done anything like that to its castle before. So it, it wasn't a source of controversy or anything. It was everybody was pretty into it. You know, it's interesting you say that because I was trying to think back. I don't think I had any individual or grouping of folks whether it be architecture or you know the usual uh partnering that i would have to do to get that castle built ever came back and said there's no way this would ever work with the color scheme nothing i might have a few little grumblings here and there i know i had a few from live entertainment because they were worried about the amount of glass i had a lot of glass on it mm. and it was down by the central spine of it but in the end, that was resolved because Paris had already resolved the same kind of issue with the amount of glass they had there. And they just did drop on, you know, like a cloth. So when they had to project at night, they have a surface to project on because glass, you can't do it. So that was resolved. But no, I didn't. I, I don't remember. They may have been talking behind my back. I don't know. <laughs> but um, nothing got in front of me. And um it never got stopped because it continued to be completed. There's also another function that was really unusual for that particular castle that hadn't been done before in the other. It's the only time we ever transformed a castle. That's a comment. And it's also the only time we did the construction work while the park continued to operate. Uh, and this is central of the entire park. And that was not an easy task by the operators and they made it happen and they made it work. I would bet that would be difficult to do. Yes. 
Yes, and we had to reroute the parade route for a period of time during the construction so that it still happened, but it went on a different direction. And everybody was on board to make it happen. And um, it was the only castle that the parts were all built off-site in southern China in a, in a uh, theme finishing vendor. And it was built, painted, put together like a Lego part ABC kind of thing. Mm-hmm. fixed it, made it work, made sure the scale color combination and the blending of it all worked, took it apart, numbered it all in five, I believe, was it five or seven gigantic pieces wow. brought in at night and brought through the park on like snail's pace. And then a huge crane lifted it and popped it on like a wedding cake into place and our team would butter it all up and connected the the seams and that's how all the pieces were brought in and done in kind of a record time that's incredible and it's beautiful they did a fabulous job and all that expansion you worked on is still is still happening now they're still yes building away yeah Arendelle is still happening and will be complete next year you know i still haven't seen my own castle is I left Hong Kong before all that was completed. So I haven't gone to see it yet. In, in reality. Yeah. Well, it's good to see the park get some love. And especially when you consider everything happening in Hong Kong right now, I know it's bound to be difficult dealing with all that while you have to do these big projects. Yeah, it was difficult. I think I, I, I'm so always thinking of my team members and just people my family, my friends that are still in Hong Kong, how difficult that is. And then on top of that, with COVID difficulty, but mm. at least Hong Kong is, is now out of the quarantine and they're in a better place. So they've opened up. But all our friends and family in Shanghai is having still a difficult time getting through all of the logistics of the whole COVID thing and by the government. Um, so they're, they're getting worn. They're getting a little bit worn out. Yeah. Well, the last thing you worked was the last thing you worked on. You mentioned relevancy before, relevancy and inclusion, and you had yeah. you worked on this initiative. Was was that your final project? I guess you could say that. Um, I had other stuff that I've been thinking about and talking about, but that one was important because it was at the right time, right place, and um, Carmen Smith was leading the whole effort on inclusivity for the company and sort of pulled off from her group, we formed this very tight, small, very focused group um, that was tasked to go all over the world and hit every single resort and look at it with a series of of, um, outlines and requirements that we created. We worked with professionals as well as uh, a lot of uh, um, advisors within the company and external to come up with a very... uh, conscious, uh, sort of respectful outline of what relevancy means to the company and and all the products involved with the company, such as from theme park type work, everything from spiels to brochures to maps to uh, marquee wording to prime example, Pirates of the Caribbean, which was created so many years ago and never really changed. 
except there are certain things in some of the scenes that just seems inappropriate today. It just doesn't seem uh, or equity and or the way it's been interpreted is just not, not very appropriate anymore. So those kinds of things we would go in and look at this team of, you know, just ours, our little group and, um, and put together a whole proposal of what we needed to do to help change. And some of it could be as small as just a certain scene or a particular area of a ride um, all the way to maybe an entire ride needs to be rethought of. Um, like I think Splash Mountain was being taken out and mm -hmm. I put in Tiana's uh, story, which I think is very appropriate and would be wonderful you know, to share. So it's that kind of stuff. And we did that for a period of time, but COVID hit. So we got as far as Walt Disney World, and it was quite a, a formidable task. We, we went through all the theme parks down there, which are seven. And then we went through all the hotels, which are 27, mm. and full relevancy for all of it. And we leveraged all the local individuals from operators, maintenance, to the individual relevancy teams that were down there. And everybody jumped on board and we managed to do it in like two weeks time because we, we, we were under a time frame. And the goal was actually next one was to go to Asia and hit Hong Kong, Shanghai and Tokyo. And then once um, the uh, whole COVID thing and shut us down and we couldn't do it anymore. So that was kind of sad. But I think the work is still continuing. Um, mm -hmm. I think Carmen's group is still continuing on all of that. Um, but we had plans to, to do all kinds of great work to move the company into the current time and uh, into the future. Absolutely. It was cool. So, so you officially leave again in what, 2020, I guess it was. I sure did. Um, yeah. I'm into the twos. So I left in December, 20, 2020 was 2020. my last. <laughs> yeah. It was my last, uh, sort of so-called Imagineer. Um, and then I I was totally, totally, so I'm a retiree from that company. And then I had the biggest surprise here this year in 2022. And I got nominated for the uh, Disney Legends Award, which was unbelievable. And then before that same year, this year, this that so the Legends Award was September for the D23 time, but in April, I was given the honor for the uh, Buzz Price Thea um, Award for Dis Distinguish of Achievement Award, which was also blew me away. And so this was a great year of just awards. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic and well-deserved. <laughs> well, what's next for you? What's, what's, uh, what are you working on? What do you, what do you have planned? Well, as soon as I, literally the next day after I, I finished with this, I, I started my own company again. So my company is D-Design and it's basically, you know, supporting the same kind of work, but I, not necessarily like I have to go work on a attraction and go to the field or anything like that. I think I've been there, done that. And um, there's plenty of people who's equally uh, capable of doing all of it. But I think my value is really to continue my work in supporting however I can, you know, individuals and advise and consult on that basis, just to advise on projects and or art direct or provide, you know, some 
producing aspect of things. And um, so I'm, I'm, I'm excited about that and I'm doing a little bit of that. And maybe I'll do some more next year. Um, meanwhile, I finally do have time to do my own artwork for myself, which for so many years, you know, do artwork for the company. Um, so now I don't have to worry about art directors or executives telling me one thing or other. I tell it to myself. And so I created a whole line of work that I'm targeting to hopefully one day I could present and pitch to galleries and see if people would be interested to have my work shown and sell. And it's all stippling. It's, it's a technique that I started, that I was doing over 30 some years and I forgot about it. And one day I woke up after my brain was cleared from not having to think about projects and hundreds and hundreds of emails that I used to get mm -hmm. <laughs> when I was UPI. And um, it came to me very quick and clear. And I began stippling, which is a, a, a pen and ink dot technique. People call it, um, uh, what's the other one they call it? Uh, gosh, I can't remember the name. But it, one form of it is using paint, which was very significant of a time in history, like in the 13, 14, 15th century, we did a lot of that point of, oh, pointillism. Mm. But that's with paint. Mine is stippling, which is with ink and dot. And I usually use like a 0 0.04 or a 0 0.05 point. So it's very small. And, um, and I lay down some concepts. It's hard to explain my concepts, but it definitely follows um, my life experience, you might say, the storyline of it and the content of it. And I love it. I love working on it. People would say, how on earth do you have the patience to sit there and dot? I mean, I'm tying millions of dots you know, oh, wow. by the time I finish a piece. Um, I, I'm very relaxed in doing it and I enjoy it very much. So I'm on number, I just started number 14 and I'm targeting 20 at minimum. So my 14th one is the biggest. It's actually 50 inches by 36 inches. And I just started it a few days ago. So that one is definitely going to be a lot of dots. It's <laughs> a lot of dots. I look forward to seeing it. <laughs> yeah. That sounds really neat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Doris, we've gone through 30 or 40 years. Do you have any, any final thoughts as to, uh, you know, look, looking back on it all? You know, it's one of those things where when you do say you look back, you kind of go, how on earth did I did, do all that? Or mm -hmm. really, and, and I try to encourage a lot of my, my mentees and just people to always keep up with your, your resume and your portfolio. And yeah, it's, it's for who knows, right? What the world may change and suddenly you decide, I think I need to go or I need to try somewhere else. Sure, that would be the reason. But I think more importantly, the other reason when you do, especially a portfolio being in the creative world, um, or if you're a writer, is um, to appreciate what you've done. And when I put together my deck for whatever, whoever needs it, and I, I always slave over it because I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to look for everything. But once I'm finished with it and I look back on it, and I am kind of marveled at how much I have done and what I have done, and the level of detail of what I have done. And it's a form of appreciating yourself and thanking kind of yourself for what you've done. Because 
a lot of times you don't always get the pat on the back and it's okay. I know you need it every now and then, but I try to tell my kids, I mean kids, my own kids, as well as just people that as long as you're happy with what you've done and that you appreciate what you've done and you thank yourself for what you've done, that has to be at the top. It has to be better than anyone coming up and patting you on the back. Because anyone can say, what a great job you've done. And usually they all say that. They're not going to say, what a horrible job you've done. <laughs> it's like you don't get that part, you know. So people are usually trying to be quite kind or nice. But it could be empty. It could be maybe not meaningful. Um, we all need a little bit of stroking. But but I think it's it's kind of cool to realize the amount of work that you have done so to that point i'm trying to make up for lost time and try to convey and pass on whatever i have learned through my years um, whether it be and i do i get a lot of questions about how do you do this or what is it and we talk about everything life all embedded in one because it is about life so yeah i'm looking forward to doing more of that and i want to i want to travel i want to see all kinds of things if i could and just see friends right all my friends all over the world absolutely had a touch ground and say hi to everyone that would be cool hopefully so, we're getting back to where we can do that i know which is great but i have to say zoom has been fantastic because you could, well look at you you're already past a certain bedtime hour <laughs> and, um, and I'm just like, okay, just getting started. I could, you know, probably stay a few more hours. So it's kind of cool that, you know, you could talk to someone anywhere. I talked to somebody in Hong Kong today and it was already two in the morning for her. Oh, wow. It was only late at, you know, early afternoon for me, but we could kind of do, I couldn't fly over there just to talk to her, mm -hmm. you know, talk for almost two hours. And that's kind of nice kind of what Epcot promised us. It finally happened. It all really happened in the end. Yeah, exactly. We're all kind of, so yeah, COVID in many ways, thank COVID that it kind of caused us to sort of know how to connect that way. But being with somebody is also, of course, we all miss that. And I think we need to have more of that now. But Absolutely. we're able to do it more. So that's important. Well, Doris, thank you so much for all your time and for your stories and congratulations on the awards on the Disney legends. I think everybody who's listening will agree it's well deserved. No, I appreciate it. And I thank you for seeking me out and kind to me um, and being interested in what I had to share and, and what my life was about. So Absolutely. I appreciate it very much. Thank you, Michael. And thank you to all your listeners. <laughs> They'll be excited, I'm sure. That brings to an end our town hall conversation with Doris Hardoon. Jeff, Doris did a little bit of everything. Yes, she did. And I found her words very inspiring. It made me want to go, you know, pick up a brush or, you know, I guess whatever, apply it to my own thing. But just hearing her talk about kind of her trajectory and, and, and the workplace, all of that was very, it was just a very unique lens. I really appreciated her going into not only the project she worked on, but the process a little bit. 
Uh, Absolutely. It's something we we probably don't talk about enough on here, and it's uh, very valuable. And I appreciate not only the time she took with us, which was considerable, and I appreciate that, but the time she's taken to be a mentor to a whole new generation. And, you know, man, talking to her and hearing her stories, I, I, I want to be your mentee. I want you to be my I mentor. Know, I know. <laughs> You've got things I I, I want to hear more. I'm I'm uh I've not run out of things uh to hear you talk about, certainly. Well, and we hear time and time again, that's really how this institutional knowledge gets passed down. It's not by school, although certainly some schooling helps, but all these people apprenticed under somebody. Yes. And they learned from, you know, Doris's generation learned from the you know, you could argue the greatest generation, but they went and founded their own uh, generation that was equally accomplished. And it's vital for, you know, older people to be around and teach the younger people how to do things. Hint, hint. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's thanks to Doris for being willing to share that with us. But like you said, to, to share it with the, the younger people in her position, I think will lead to a lot of fruit. That's right. It, it, there's just experience can't be replaced uh, with book learning. You know that book learning, college right. boy. Right. Um, yeah, there, there's no there's no replacement for learned experience by people who have done the years of work. And you know, in the first part of Doris's interview, she talked about all the people. Yeah, Herb Ryman, Mark Davis, all all this roster of people that were around to give experience. And that's what we need Doris's generation to stick around at, at Imagineering and other places to share that knowledge. Right, right. Michael, it's that time where we check in with our Patreon, see if anyone has signed up. Uh, did anyone sign up for Patreon this month? Yes, we'd like to welcome Joshua to our patreon roster uh much appreciated of course as we appreciate all our participants he'll be signing up for early access to our episodes and special content special content just for our patrons and at a certain level of course can join in for our really fun monthly live stream where we have a great group chat and show some rare Disney photos and play some rare Disney videos and just have a good time every month with a good bunch of people. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a good time. It is indeed. And we thank you to all our Patreon members who support us every month. And, uh, thanks for your participation. Whenever we do live streams, all of it's so fun. Uh, it's just great to have, being in community with you all, um, you know, we talked about the uh, Bob Iger transition. Uh, that was a fun night on Twitter, and I feel like our community was really popping uh, just yeah, with the yeah, news of that and stuff like that. Uh, becomes so much more fun when you're in community with people. So absolutely, yeah, I feel like our chat kind of captures uh, the chat on our live stream captures the Twitter of old, and yes, uh, that's fun, yes. kind of. So. We try and put up much special content as possible, and you get a packet of goodies, of course, and uh, it's all tax deductible. So sign up now, patreon.com slash USA for the holidays. And I will point out, this is something I thought of mentioned on Twitter earlier today. 
you know, now that we've been doing this a while, when you sign up, you've got a big, big old archive of past live streams you can watch. That's true. I didn't even think about that. But so yeah, there's like hours and hours and hours of stuff you can go back and watch if you're so inclined. So. Well, the other thing is you can catch a uh, public live stream if you're wondering what, what they're like. Uh, there is one up on the YouTube channel for the general public. I had somebody send me a screenshot of that the other day. So I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot. That's, I forgot uh, we did that. So if you if you wonder what it's like, you can sample the goods before you sign up on our YouTube page, which is under Progress of the USA. So Absolutely. A lot of good stuff up on that channel to boot. So consider doing it. And if you just want to reach out to us otherwise, you can email us at podcast at com. You may even make it on the air. And, of course, our Twitter. Uh, Michael's at Progress City USA, and I'm at Jeff G. Crawford. Michael, what do we got coming up next in the hopper? Well, we're continuing with our Epcot theme and the time of year. And our next episode is entitled Harvest. It's harvest time. And we're going to look at the land. We're going to listen to the land and discuss some topics relating to disney's relationship with the land and the development of the pavilion and some fun other things too yeah we'll take a good turn there at uh-huh. the i don't know i ran out of steam but yes one of the great pavilions uh, luckily some of it's still intact and we're going to talk some about the development of it and some figures that helped develop it and all this and that. So we hope you tune in to that. We look forward to joining you very soon with that one. And from all of us to all of you, we wish you well and we'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.